0: Take your Bibles. Be looking at the book of Philippians, chapter four. We'll be there in a moment. But I think that, uh, though it may be exaggerated, I think we see the madness and the mayhem that can come at this time of year and the craziness of the season that uh, can almost uh, feed on itself like a like some kind of virus that flows through our culture. It's uh, I think the best way I can think of it is that we live at the end of a pipeline of materialism at the end of a plastic, uh, synthetic imitation feeding into this world kind of uh, uh, world in which we live. And so we're constantly being drawn in and swimming in and, and even drinking of this pipeline. Here's a couple of statistics to, to just kind of point that out. Do you realize in the United States that we spend so much on toys that we import $23.6 billion in toys every year. Now talk about lots of money spent on plastic and synthetics and things that really don't have a whole lot of lasting value. In fact, when you compare that across the globe, the amount spent by the next 10 highest toy importing countries is combined at $21.7 billion. So we, again, are living in at the end of a pipeline that says stuff is really what matters. And I think it's more of a pipeline of plastics and synthetics. It's more of a pipeline or more of a cesspool that we might find ourselves living in. Neil Borman said it like this, a British style writer. said he was burning all of his brand name clothes. He said, from an early age I had been taught that to be accepted and to be lovable, to be cool, one must have the right stuff. At, At junior school, I tried to make friends with the popular kids, only to find to be ridiculed for a lack of stripes on my trainers. Once I had nagged my parents to the point of buying me the shoes, I was duly accepted at school, and I became much happier as a result. As long as my parents continued to buy me the brands, life was more fun. Now at the age of 31, I still behave according to playground law. And I wonder how much of us really don't grow out of that absorption with the synthetic, with the accessories, with the desire for the stuff to make us look good. And even at this Christmas time, is it really about us looking better in 2010 or is it about the beauty of a savior and we can somehow get caught up into making ourselves beautiful that we miss the beauty of the savior i wonder if maybe we spent less we spent less maybe this season that we might enjoy more it almost seem like an oxymoron that you would put those two statements together because, again, everything in our culture says spend more and you will enjoy more. But what if we spent less? We might enjoy more. Life may be better if we might think differently about this world in which we live. That's, again, constantly striving for more, more stuff, more prosperity, more gain, more material. And we're living in this cesspool. It's really hard to assess this because when we're all in it together, we're all wet together. We're all drinking the same Kool-Aid together. And so we're all sucked into it. And we just see ourselves as a normal American person. William Wilberforce, one man that we would all respect, said this. He said, Prosperity hardens the heart. Prosperity hardens the heart you say, I don't like that statement. And I'll tell you, to be honest with you, the first time I read that, I thought, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true in all cases. It may be true in some. But, but the reality is, just because I don't like it, doesn't make it not true. In fact, you can find biblical examples of this. In the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 6, it says, I gave them food, and they became full and satisfied. But then they became proud and forgot me. Meditate on that verse a while. Think about that one for a while. God provides food. He provides us, makes us full. We become satisfied. And in that satisfaction, we become arrogant of of our own accomplishments and our own successes, that our successes ends up being our failure. We forget God. John MacArthur, a pastor in California, said it like this. He said, Christmas has really become a hopeless muddle of confusion. The humility and poverty of the stable have somehow confused with the wealth and the indulgence and the selfishness of gift giving. The quietness of Bethlehem is mingled in, in the din of shopping malls and freeway traffic. The soberness of the Incarnation is somehow mixed with the drunkenness of the season. Blinking colored lights somehow have some connection to the Star of Bethlehem. Again, I think because we're all swimming in the same water, because we're all drinking of the same water, we don't see it. We just see that we are living the American dream. We're living that American get more, save more, get all you can, can all you get, and set on the can. We just lived for that. And again, I don't want to stand before you today and say the stuff of this world is evil. It's not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying what it has done to us, and what we how we have been sucked in and become a part of this this culture of get and get and get has tainted and actually taken the story of Christmas and absolutely polluted it. That's what I want to say. And that if we're truly going to enter into the narrative of the incarnation of the Savior of the world, then let's revisit the humility and the poverty and the and the less of the story and not the affluence and the prosperity. Of this culture in which we live you will not i guarantee you you will not hear this message anywhere else in the next month you'll only hear it here not not a media not a not a retailer not 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 a print material not a radio not a not a television ad there this message will not go out anywhere else so everything that I'm saying will be swimming upstream today. And even right now you're saying, okay, some of you are thinking, he's anti-Christmas, he's anti-gifts, he's anti Uh-uh. I'm just pro-Christ. And understanding if we are talking about celebrating the Christmas story, if we're talking about not just talking about the story, but entering into the story of Christmas, what should that really look like? How can we spend less and enjoy more? In the book of Philippians chapter 4, we'll be there for the next two weeks because I think Paul really deals with it in a number of capacities of the Christmas story. He deals with it very, very quickly next week. We'll talk, I'll let next week be next week. But this week, as he, as he kind of comes to the whole idea of the stuff of this world, and helping us to maybe get a grasp on this, Paul was a missionary, as we know, and he was around the world and sharing around the known world of that day, the Roman Empire of that day, and the Greek culture of that day. He was all over the place. And he really relied, as even missionaries do today, relies on the contributions and the support of, of, of churches that believe in his ministry. One of those churches, the first church that really joined in and said, hey, we believe what you're about, and we're going to support you in what you're about, was the church of Philippi. It's the first church. They really bought into it and supported him in what he was doing. So as, as we kind of jump into this story, understand what's going on. But one thing that, that, that Paul brings out in this story is that he learned something. He learned something. He learns it, and he even mentions it four times in two verses. He mentions the word learned, learned. He mentions the word knows, knows. He even actually calls it a secret, like it's some kind of hidden combination to get out of the cesspool of materialism. He says, "I, I know the secret. I've learned the secret. I know what it is. And it's found in one single word. Are you ready for it? It's the word contentment, not complacency contentment, not apathy, contentment. Whenever I can say in my own life, enough. I have enough. Now what can I do with the rest of this? That's not the culture in which we live. If you have it, you spend it. If it's on the table, you eat it. Whatever it is we consume in this world, and what Paul learned, what Paul knew, he says it again and again, it's the secret in which unlocks the, the very ability to enjoy life with little or with a lot. He even says that. It's the word contentment. Take your Bibles, look with me at Philippians 4, verse 10. As I pick up reading there, he said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at the length that you have revived your concern for me. But you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. And again, I think this is a key phrase. Being able to look at our life. Listen to this. Being able to look at our life and to say, that is a need, that is a want. If you can't distinguish between a need and a want at the very core essence of your life, then you haven't learned what Paul is speaking of here. What do you really, 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 really must need to live and exist and, and, and even prosper, let's say, move forward in this life versus what do you want to move forward? He, he, he said, not that I speak from, from need, for I have learned, there's the first time, I underscore it there, I have learned in that whatever situation to be content. I know, there's that word again, I know how to be brought low and I know, there it is again, how to abound. And in any and every circumstances, I've learned, there it is again, the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share... My trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So they were the first church to jump on board. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help uh, for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift. He's not some first century televangelist here. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent and the fragrant offering and the sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Your gift was acceptable and pleasing to me? No, it's not that important. It's acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God the Father, glory forever and ever. Amen. How do we live in this world of plenty? How do we swim in the cesspool of materialism and learn to be content? I think Paul mentions in in this dialogue with the church at Philippi He gives us, I think, some handles to hold on to, to at least begin that little education process, to maybe start down a path of learning to be content, that I don't have to have all of this to be happy. The very first thing is realizing the insignificance of things. Realizing the things that are around me, the things that are in the stores are really... Very insignificant. This is the first lesson I think that he speaks of in this passage. Former Federal Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan was speaking to Harvard University graduates in 1999 when he told the students this. He said, A material existence, he's t- telling them that they, they are embarking on a material existence that neither my generation nor any preceded it could have remotely imagined. These Harvard graduates were entering into a world that the Federal Reserve Chairman, the money man of America, was saying you are going into a world that is absolutely affluent and has so much. George Gilder said it like this. He says the average American today lives better than the millionaires of the 1800s. The average American Greek proverb says it like this to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Verse 12 speaks of Paul's situation, and Paul had learned this valuable lesson of contentment. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Of being wealthy, that word plenty there actually means to overflow. His pockets at times were overflowing with this stuff right here. He could take this stuff and it would spill out of his pockets. He knew what plenty looked like. But he also knew what nothing looked like. To have lint falling out of your pocket. I know what plenty looks like, and I know also know what nothing looks like. I know what it's like to have a full spread at Thanksgiving dinner, if he had Thanksgiving dinner. I know what it's like to have that. And I also know where's my next meal going to come from. But I've learned the secret that whatever it is, I've learned to be content. That really all of this stuff that we work for and strive for and, and fight for It's really not that important. Proverbs says it like this in Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. It's trying to give a balance to the the whole perspective of the stuff that we live for. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. See, he learned that, that there's got to be a balance out there, and the balance is different. And being wealthy is not honorable, and being poor is not you know, some pathetic situation that we need to lift high up or something like that. It's, it's somehow learning that, that in, the, in the stuff of this world, it really doesn't matter. That's why Jesus said, He said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. D- don't, don't go there. He said in Matthew 6:19, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. See, Paul had learned that his value was not in his stuff. What are you worth today? You go to a financial planner. They'll sit down with you. They'll ask all your assets, all your liabilities. They'll talk about your income. They'll talk about your 401K. They'll talk about your house. They'll talk about your cars. Talk about your debt against your cars. You add all that up. You subtract all that out and you do all the math of that. And he comes up with your net worth. What are you worth? Well, let me give you a, a, an easy equation to that. Your worth out of everything in life that money can't buy and death can't take away and that's really what you're worth. Money can't buy and death can't take away. You know what? That leaves you just with yourself. That is what you need to focus on. How am I doing in my relationship with God? How am I doing in my relationship with humanity? Send out a book to all of our members, Crazy Love book. And hopefully you're reading it. If you didn't get one, go to the store, the sold house, go to the store, you can find them at just about any store around it. Read it. Just chew on it. It's not a story. It's not a book on Christmas. I'll promise you that. It's a book on getting the perspective of what real love relationship is with God. When I first read it, I thought, this is radical Christianity. And I had to take the word radical off. This is crazy Christianity. Because, I mean, nobody lives like this. I had to take the word crazy off. I really realized at I got the end of the book, this is Christianity. This is the real stuff. And I have been living the plastic, synthetic imitation out there. Realizing the value. And the thing is, is so many people have read this book and it's rocked their world. I want to show you one little clip of, of a family. It was recently on Good Morning America that read the book and how it rocked their world. And for each one of us, it will be different. It doesn't mean we all become a cult. We all dress the same and live the same and in some kind of commune. For us, it will be different. For you, it will be different. But may God so change you through this process and through this journey of this advent conspiracy, this desire for crazy love. May He so change you that you are truly different. Watch this.
1: American. you know how we love it here and so do you to find people who are helping others through tough times in these tough economies well you're going to see a family here right now these are the Lakens. these are some good people and it has to do with this bus but really more about what's in their hearts first let's take a look at their story then we'll talk to them jay lakin and his family americans who are truly going the distance
0: here we are going down the road here's my lovely wife
1: They traded their 4,500-square-foot home for this big RV, leaving a life of wealth in suburban Atlanta, taking to the open road, a family of six with a mission.
2: I think we thought that the more we owned, the more we had, the happier we'd be. It ended up doing the opposite, it ended up taking life more than it ended up adding to our life.
1: We decided to travel with a purpose, and so everywhere we would go, we would serve in rescue missions and homeless shelters around the country. It's a mission they call Crazy Love in Action. Dad in the driver's seat or working as a traveling mortgage broker in his RV office, while mom, Beth, homeschools their four children, Ben, Becca, Abigail, and Noah. At first it seemed really weird. It was like, we're crazy, you know, we're going on the road in the RV. But then, once I got used to the idea, I was
2: really excited about it.
1: So far, they've covered 35 states, traveling from shelter to shelter, volunteering to do everything. Crushing cans for recycling, to painting walls, to serving food. It's interesting to see the people light up when they see a family
2: come together. Sometimes the hardest of the hardest people, they'll give a smile and they're going to look in their eye when they see Noah serving in the line.
1: They've made new friends along the way. People like Efren Ramos, a homeless man from New York City living at the Bowery Mission, rebuilding his life. I think we appreciate it more when people just take the time. You know, it makes you feel like you're a regular person. You have people coming in with smiles on their face feeding you food. They don't want anything. They just want to have a conversation. That's all doesn't get any better than that. And for the Lakin family, it doesn't get any better either. They're living their new American dream together as a family, making their way across our great country, serving one American neighbor at a
2: time. There are opportunities all around us. You just have to keep your eyes open and see needs and just be willing to give of yourself. We've just gained gratefulness and a richness in our lives that we didn't have before.
1: Jay, Beth, Ben, Becca, Abigail, and Noah, is that right? You're good. Good, I got it. Yay for me. Good. Crazy love in action. What does it mean, why do you do this?
0: Well, we went on a missions trip to Africa, and we got impacted by that, and we just want to go and show the love of God and Jesus to other people in a tangible way. And we're just passionate about getting other people to get out of their comfort zone and serve wherever they
1: are. For all the sacrifice, Beth, do you give more, or do you think you get more?
2: Oh, by far, I think we get more. I do. I mean, I, I think it has its challenges, but it's, it's been... Uh... A trip full of blessings and just unbelievable experiences.
1: You're the best. Thank you for being here. Wave goodbye. Go to abcnews.com. Find more people like this. Americans.
0: One of the phrases in there, the new American dream. I wonder if we would define our dream differently. If we entered in to the Christmas narrative as Jesus lived it. Not as Madison Avenue tells us to. The sooner we learn the insignificance of things, the sooner we're on that path. The second thing that Paul brings out in here that helps us to see how he learned the contentment to live on in life is the sufficiency of Christ. Paul learned that it wasn't in the plenty that got him through life. It wasn't in the plenty that sur- helped him to survive in the jails. It wasn't in that. It wasn't in the poverty even. It was. It was in learning who Christ was and, and engaging Him and in, in all of His power and understanding that. Leonard Sweet said it like this in Carpe Diemana. He said, "He said the greater the, the material fullness, the greater the spiritual emptiness." That's a sad statement if it's true of us. If the more we have, the 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 hungrier we actually are in our spirits, but yet we don't even realize it. If you look at, again, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, it says it like this. Paul didn't say this. I can do all things. He said, I can do all things through Christ. I have heard so many people miss and abuse this verse. I can do all things. I can do all things. I can do all things. It's not that I can do all things. It's I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When I'm living... In the sufficiency, in the completeness of a relationship with him, then I can experience that when I have Christ, Christ is all I need. When I have Christ, Christ is enough. The Amplified or excuse me, the Jerusalem Bible says it like this there is nothing I cannot master with the help of the one who gives me strength. I love the Amplified. It says that I am ready for anything, equal to anything, through Him who infuses inner strength into me. That is, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I can stand and I can walk and I can handle the storms and the temptations and the struggles for more and plenty and whatever else when I understand the sufficiency of Christ. I've learned to be content in that. Two very key points that you've got to walk away from this point on. One is that you must establish a relationship with Jesus. There must be a relationship that is there. If you don't have that, you will constantly be trying to fill it up with all the other stuff of this world. Do you have a relationship? You will go through Christmas season again. You will hear the Christmas story again, but you will not enter into the Christmas story until you have a relationship with Jesus. It will be just another story. A missionary in inner city London was, was doing work and went to an old tenement building where there was, he heard of a, of a lady who was struggling with her life and he went to see if he could bring her any help, any, any life-giving elements or whatever. And so he just went to her and she was, she was old and she was whittled up and, and she was curled up and laying on the floor. She had no furniture. No one to help get her into the furniture. She had furniture. She was laying there. And the missionary, broken hearted, bent over and said, what do you need? I, what, how can I help you? And her response was this, I have all I really need. I have Jesus Christ. Wow. That so stirred him. He went back to his house. And he said, in the heart of London, he wrote this poem, in the heart of London city, amid the dwellings of the poor, these bright, and golden words were uttered, I have Christ. What want I more? Spoken by a lonely woman dying on a garret floor. Have not one earthly comfort. I have Christ. What want I more? Oh, that we might say that. That we might find our sufficiency. That I can do all things through Christ. I have found all. Everything that I need in a relationship with Him. Establish that relationship. Have that relationship. Don't go any further into this Christmas season that before you leave here today, you come see me, we talk, we pray together, we establish that relationship with God. But number two is that you nurture that relationship as well. Notice that Paul said, I learned, I know, I learned the secret. He's speaking there of a progressive relationship. He's speaking there of a dynamic relationship. Today again, I'm challenge you to swim upstream. Madison Avenue's running this way, swim upstream. Take a challenge today to go into a crazy kind of love relationship with God that may call you to do something just so radical and so bizarre to the known world, but you are willing And you know the sufficiency of Christ will be there as you go with Him. Learn what Paul learned in his life. I'm afraid there's a lot of people, a lot of believers, who have taught a lot of Sunday school classes and a lot of Bible studies and have done a lot of good things in this world that have never learned to be content. To say, that's enough. Thank you so much. Now let's take the rest and let's give it. Somebody else. The sufficiency of Christ, the insignificant of things, but one other thing is the investing in others. Paul had learned the value of investing in others. That the true reward of life was not how much could he accumulate, but actually how much could he give away. And the church of Philippi was learning this very same thing: that as he as they gave away, they were actually receiving back to themselves. Verse 14. Says it like this. It says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Verse 16, even Thessalonica, you sent me help. Verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I want to tell you a little principle here in life and about a relationship with God. Is you can't out-give God. As you subtract, He adds and sometimes multiplies. As you give, guess what? He is giving back. He said here, He said, not that I'm looking for the gift, them giving. He says, I'm looking for the fruit that's going to be on your account. I'm looking for the blessing that's going to be to you because of your gift. So as we're subtracting, God is adding and even multiplying into their life, into their ministry. Just think about Joseph Addison said it like this. He says, what I spent, I lost. What I possessed, I left to others. But what I give away remains with me. And the idea that as I am a blessing to others, I don't even realize the amount of blessing it is to see life change in somebody else. One attorney in Kentucky named Mark, he said it like this. He says, my pursuit of money drove me away from God. He now today gives away half of his income. He says, but since I've been giving to Him, everything changed. In fact, giving has brought me closer to God than anything else. If we were to enter into the Christmas story and not just tell it this season, I think we're going to have to look at the stuff under the tree, the stuff in the malls, stuff in life a whole lot differently. And we're going to need to look at people differently. As some of you who were away last week, I was away as well. I was in, in Zambia looking at adopting, looking for, then looking at adopting memory, who I spoke of a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Lori and I have talked a lot, obviously, during this whole process and the journey there and back. And uh, It has been an emotional roller coaster, to say the least, uh, for us. I was able to find memory pretty quickly. I mean, within a day, I found her, and um, the uh, the give and the take of it is that she is married and she has a child, and so the good of that is that she's no longer with her relatives that were abusing her, so she's out of that and she's into a good good marriage. And I can, I, I believe. In my heart that it 's a good marriage. I spent a number of time, a number of hours with the family with gift, who her husband is ironically his name is gift and uh, i I spent hours with them praying with him going to work with with gift and seeing his work and his market where he where he works and you can read all about that on the blog but i I have to say that through the journey it was one of those that that was again full, and so the last two days there, as I as I didn't go to help, I went to help one orphan, and some of y'all really just rallied around us with prayer and support, and it's it's been an amazing journey, I I think for all of us. But I went there to 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 help this one orphan girl named Memory, in and. and The story continues when I, at the end of my time there, I I just finally stopped, put the brakes on and took two days and sat by the Zambezi River and just thought and prayed, God, what have you been up to in this? Why here? Why this? Why all of this and going on? And then I remembered that the last time I had seen memory, which was three years ago, and by the way, the only regret that Lori and I have is that three years ago we didn't start this process. Uh, Why? Why did we wait so long? And so that's the regret that we walk away from. But I remember that the last time our team was there, we were working on Linda Baptist Church, and right across from Linda Baptist Church was this orphanage where they had maybe 50, 60 kids staying there. And those of you who were on that trip can maybe remember that. We went across, we saw the kids, and and it was not exactly a a, a blessed experience to see their living conditions. But uh, I remember that. I remember that orphanage. And so I thought, this is like the day before I'm leaving. I'm going to go see this orphanage and see how these kids are doing. And come to find out there's 240 orphans at this place now. And so I pull up at, 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 this, at this, this Linda uh, secondary school. And, and I, I decided then, I've got money that, that, I, that I had to bring to, to bring that one orphan back, memory, what about these 240 orphans? So I said, how can we help you? And she talked about how they try to feed the children because they don't have food unless people give food. I said, listen, don't you worry about it. At least one week's worth of food we will provide for you. So I think we have a picture of us starting to unload the food uh, from the back of the Land Rover. And and we're just going to take this food in. and, And it's a week's worth of food that we're taking in to feed these orphans and I think we would have a couple of pictures of of some of the children 240 of them and this is just a sampling of the kids that were there so I went for one but somehow was able to help 240 I you know in as the the headmaster was taking me through the halls of the of this school and she's the lady there on the right uh, and she took me out to the back side of the school where they go. And we have one more picture. I want to show it to you. The, the school here is just, it's got a mural there. And the kids have painted this mural. And each kid down there below represents a kid that's in this school. And each balloon that they're holding is a balloon of a dream that they have for their own life. You look at the furthest left. There's a little kid see, sitting at a computer There's another dream of a child that he would grow up and become a doctor and help those who are sick. There's another one of a nurse and another one of a teacher and another one of a musician. And you can go all down the board and you can see these kids' dreams. And though it was only for a week, to be able to reach into their life and to bless them for a week with just food, that's all, My friends, who gave more that day? Uh, who received more that day? Those kids got a full belly for a week and, and 240 of them and on and on. You can go with that, with that story. But I can tell you right now that I walked away with more than they did. Even though I spent hundreds of dollars, no. Even though thousands of dollars, no. I walked away richer because I gave from you And I gave from them to help them. So all I can say is, as Paul says to the church here, he says, listen, I don't need the gift. I want the blessing that the gift will give to you. And when we can learn and spin this world in its proper order, we will see that the things of this world really are insignificant. We will see that Christ is really all I need. And I think we'll also see that it is far more blessed to give than it is to receive. Leonard Sweet said it like this, it is only by the slight of soul that we can convince ourselves any longer that money brings happiness. We eat better than ever. We dress better than ever. We drive. We live better. We are not happier than our ancestors were. We are not more noble than they were. We are not holier than they were. And we are not even smarter about the facts of life than they were. We do not love better and we do not die better. I have a question for you and it kind of originates from the book Crazy Love. And I've just changed it a little bit. But if Christ and Jesus and His life were all there was about Christmas, not the eggnog, not the turkey, not the bonus from the office, Not the extra work days off. If Christ were the only element of Christmas, would we be as excited, as festive, as sold out, as involved as we are? It says more about our worship than anything else. I'm afraid our Christmases are less about Christ and more about stuff. Let us bring it back to Him. Father God, we bow before You and that our hearts would be turned to see the value and the sufficiency of You and the insignificant of the matter of this world. And that we might learn, Lord, that through giving, we actually receive. That through sharing it and by subtracting out of our net worth, we are actually receiving many more times in blessings back to us, that we might take and rewrite the Christmas story—not the Christmas story of Scripture, not the narrative of the first century, but the narrative of the 21st century—that we might know you, Jesus as the only true Savior and Lord, friend and confidant, the full and complete gift of Christmas, however meek and mild you came into this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You should be a part of this responsive reading.
2: As part of our Advent series, I'd like to invite you to join me in a responsive reading. When you see the italicized print on the screen, please read with me. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins, Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Taking the very nature of a servant, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Being made in human likeness, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He humbled himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him, and became obedient to death. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Even death on a cross, from the manger to the tomb, from the shepherds to the soldiers, God so loved the world. Jesus came, Jesus loved, Jesus wept, Jesus touched, Jesus died, Jesus gave, Jesus gave. He gave until he had nothing left to give. Jesus lives this Christmas. Let this same mindset be yours. Let us come to him because he came to us. Let us love one another because he first loved us. Let us weep with those who weep. Let us touch the untouchables. Let us die to self. Let us give so that we can live. Let us give our lives away. Because he gave his all to us. Let this mind be in us. Today. This holy time. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given.